Good evening. Welcome to the Spirit and Life Bible Study. My name is Jonathan. Our reader is Cara tonight, and our topic is the second coming. Just taking something small and trivial tonight. Um, the Bible says interestingly different things about this, just to set it up a little bit. On the one hand, it says that Jesus is definitely going to come again and that we'll see him coming in the clouds of heaven, but also says that he is not going to return to the flesh, that his kingdom is not of this world, and that his coming will not be in any way observable. <laughs> so how is that going to work exactly? So that's what we're talking about tonight. If you care to join me for an opening prayer. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you are the one God of heaven and earth. Our Lord, we thank you for joining us in this room tonight, for your presence in the pages of your word. We pray for your blessing on all of us and that this blessing goes out to the world. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Sending love to those of you out there online and here in the room and getting the audio podcast. It's a pleasure to be with you. And uh, it's kind of poignant because we're winding down this whole phase of the Bible study. We've got three more episodes. This is the third to last. And we're going over the five great topics the first one is the unity and trinity in the Lord. Second is the nature and purpose of the first coming. Tonight we're doing the nature and purpose of the second coming. So I talked last time, and you didn't need to be here for that episode, but the, um, the first coming seems much misunderstood. And yet, compared to the second coming, at least in the first coming, there were some pretty concrete things that people... You know, there was someone named Jesus and something happened and it was written about in a book or something. But the second coming is even vaguer, like what exactly is going on? What's going to happen there? And a fascinating little fact that you may or may not be aware of, I went for a long time without being aware of this, is that in Swedenborg's book, True Christianity, he says that chapter 14, the last and final chapter, is going to be about the second coming. And then when you get to that chapter... You read through, and he's talking about other things, talking about other things, and then he gets to the end, and then and he finally says this sentence that you've been dying to hear. All, this is his last published theological work at the end of his life, and he finally says the sentence you've been dying to hear. As for what that's going to be like, talking about the second coming or the coming of this new church that he talks about, um, he says, uh, the prophets talk about it. And then he just quotes the prophets. He has almost nothing to say about it himself. He just says, go read your Old Testament. That'll tell you what the second coming is going to be like. It's fascinating. And for some reason, I went for a long time thinking that the Bible wouldn't tell you much about the second coming. But Swedenborg would tell you all about it. But it's interesting that when he finally gets a hold of the mic, he says, oh, just go see the Bible. That'll, that'll tell you about the second coming. So what do we learn about it? Uh, well, we get this rather confused picture that I just alluded to. And I want to start with a completely unrelated scripture um, just to set this up. It's kind of fun. So let's go to the Old Testament. And 
you go through the five books of Moses and then first and second Samuel, first and second Kings. I want to go to first Kings chapter nine. This is a story, 19, I'm sorry, 19. First Kings 19 is a story where Elijah has just done something enormously powerful. There's just one particular thing I want to get out of this story, and I'll tell you about that in a little bit. But Elijah's done an amazing thing. He just called down fire from heaven on the altar, and then he slew the 400 prophets of Baal, and, and then Ahab and Jezebel, his enemies, threatened his life. So at the beginning of 19, that's where we are. Let's just read the beginning of that. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods, so let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them, by tomorrow about this time. Yes, by tomorrow I will put you in the same condition that you put those other prophets in. And so Elijah is super powerful. He says, you can't hurt me. What, what does he say? And when he saw that, he rose. Is that what I'm saying? Yes. Rose and ran for his life. He ran for his life. Yes, he didn't seem to feel powerful. He ran for his life. I see. Okay, go on. And went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Okay, so now he's safely in Beersheba. What does he do? But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. Oh, he kept going. Just run right out into the wilderness. Okay. And came and sat down under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. It's interesting to pray to die when you're running for your life. Um, it's just interesting. Okay, go on. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Okay, so here's his situation. He's way out in the wilderness. He's just, he just took off. He didn't bring provisions or anything. He, he's just running for his life out in the wilderness, but also sort of losing his will to live. And an angel touches him and says, Arise and eat. What is he supposed to eat? He's in the middle of the wilderness. And what, what do we read there? Then he looked and, and there... he looked. Okay, so he looked. It's like he lifted his eyes. He, he looks. The angel says, arise and eat. Oh, and he, he lifts up his eyes and looks. And what does he find? And there by his head was a cake baked on coals. And by a... his head. <coughs> there was food by his head. Okay, go on. A cake baked on coals and a jar of water. Yes, a jar of water and a cake by his head. You know, so the angel says, arise and eat. So he's looking around to try to find it. And, and there's food and water right by his head. Let's just finish this little story. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, arise and eat because the journey is too great for you. Mm. So he arose and ate and drank, and? and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights, so far as Horeb, the mountain of God. The Horeb, the mountain of God, where the Ten Commandments were given. He goes way out. It's almost like he's retracing the, you know, wandering through the wilderness, only starting from the other end. But he ends up all the way out at Mount Sinai and went on the strength of that food. He was fed twice that food that he saw right by his head. Now, you'll find out later, hopefully, if this all lands correctly, 
uh, why I'm thinking about that. But there's something about the second coming that I think is like looking and finding that there's stuff right by your head that you missed before. I think there's something about the second coming that's like that. All right. Um, okay, let's see. All right. So there's lots of passages that talk about his coming. It's interesting how often, and it comes up a lot in the epistles. The epistles are a lot about the coming of Jesus. There are scores of passages, and it often uses the term appearing, the appearing of Jesus Christ, which is interesting. And a number of the passages also emphasize sight. Uh, I thought we should just look at a very typical one. Let's go to Matthew in the New Testament. First of the Gospels there, Matthew 24. Matthew 24. And in Matthew 24, Jesus has just been in the temple. And then he sits down on the Mount of Olives. And in verse 3, the <coughs> disciples come to him and ask him, How is the, what, what's the end of the world? How is this thing going to go? What's the sign of your coming? What are we doing? And the whole of Matthew 24 is about that. Uh, in this wrap-up, we won't go into that much, but we did a whole series on Matthew 24 at one point in these Bible studies. And I wanted you to look right now at just verses uh, 29 and 30. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Mm. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Okay, so there's, there's a lot in there. But uh, uh, first of all, I want to draw your attention to the interesting little fact that, uh, dear reader, what, what's going to happen to the sun? Is it going to get brighter? No. It will be darkened. It'll be darkened. Okay. How about the moon? Will not give its light. Won't give its How about the stars? Fall from heaven. Okay. Sun, moon, and stars don't ah. shine. Yeah. And the stars fall. And so, and what are we going to do when the Son of Man comes in the clouds of heaven? We're going to see the Son of Man. Well, how are we going to see him? If it's all dark, there's no sun, there's no moon, no stars, and we're going to see him coming in the dark or something? How, how does that work? That's interesting. And uh, you'll also notice that it doesn't say Jesus is going to come in the clouds of heaven. It doesn't say that. There's two things it says that's different to that, to my mind. One is they shall see the Son of Man. So the see is different than just he's going to come in the clouds. It says they shall see the Son of Man. And it doesn't say Jesus, it says the Son of Man. Like it's a, a little bit different name. It, to me, it obviously refers to Jesus. He refers to himself as the Son of Man repeatedly. But it's just a little different. They shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And interestingly, there will be this grief before that. And uh, it's interesting, too, that in the Old Testament... Oh, let's just go back real quick. Let's see if we can find it quickly. If you turn to the middle of your Bible and you hit something like Isaiah and turn to the right, go through Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and then you go into the minor prophets, Hosea and Joel. Let's go to Joel chapter 2. Joel 2, verse 
Now we're in the Old Testament, right? Uh, how about 2 verse 10? This is the Old Testament's prediction of what's going to happen when the Lord comes at the time of the New Testament, in effect. 2 verse 10. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. Yeah. So the sun, moon, and stars are going to stop working when Jesus comes into the world. Did the physical sun, moon, and stars stop working when Jesus came into the physical? No, as far as we know, they didn't. I mean, there was that interesting darkness during the crucifixion or something, but uh, generally, no, that, that didn't literally happen. And yet people still seem to like to think that uh, when Jesus comes again, it will be literal sun, moons, and stars falling. And look at... Um, uh, 2 verse 31 in Joel there. Mm, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Hmm. Yeah, okay. So it sort of gets you thinking maybe this is not physical because how can you see someone in the clouds of heaven? And it, this might be as good a time as any. We go into this in greater depth than other Bible studies. But... You have some, just if you take that rationally, you have certain problems, which is that, uh, except maybe after, a, you know, I don't know, a volcano eruption or something, there's never clouds over the entire planet. It says everyone, you know, in Revelation, it says everyone shall see him, even those who, every eye shall see him, even those who pierced him. Uh, so if every eye is going to see him and he's coming in the clouds, is it going to be cloudy all over the whole world? One side of the world is dark while the other side is light. It's never light on both sides, especially not if you extinguish the sun. And then everybody's going to see him at the same time or is it going to happen extremely slowly? So it happens over a number of days. You, you sort of run into problems when you think about it as a physical event. It's rather confusing to think about. And... Uh, in Revelation, let's just do this quickly, shall we? And uh, so all the way to the right in your, at the end of the book, uh, Revelation 6, verse uh, 12 and 13. This is John on the Isle of Patmos, and he has a vision. I looked when he opened the sixth seal... And behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Yes, and we talked in one Bible study a long time ago about the fact that often when absolutely calamitous world destruction is described, figs are in the story for some <laughs> unknown reason. And we talk about why that is, but it's bizarre how often they're in there. And, but what I wanted to draw your attention to here is the image of the stars falling to earth. Well, we know from science that the earth is way smaller than any star. Like you wouldn't even be able to fit a, a, a hundredth of any, the smallest star onto the earth. How are those stars going to fall to the earth? And that's all the stars. All the stars fall to earth, right? And so look at 8, verse 12. 8, verse 12. Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars. What we, we already lost all our stars. They all fell to earth, but now another, so now four-thirds of the stars have been adversely affected. 
Okay, and let's look at 12, verse 4. This is the great dragon who appears in heaven. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Okay, so now we've had five-thirds of the total number of stars have been cast to the earth. We have a little math problem with all these stars, and we have a serious math problem with them being cast to earth. So if it doesn't mean that, you know, what, what, what does it mean? What's going on? So Scripture describes Jesus coming in the clouds of heaven and people seeing him, and yet it says, as I said at the beginning, that he can't do that. Let's look at that right now. If you go to Acts, which is right after John in the four Gospels, uh, Acts chapter 13 has something to tell us here. It's about Jesus, and it says something to me that's very, very potent. It's talking about Jesus. Let's read verses 33 and 34 in Acts 13. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken thus. And then he quotes some other things from the... Well, let's go ahead and read that. I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. Okay, so wait a minute. It just says that God raised Jesus from the dead and he's no more to return to corruption. He's... This is a world of corruption. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Let's go to the right through Romans to 1 Corinthians, where this is talked about some more, and uh, where it's very clear that it's talked about... Uh, let's go back to... Let's see. Uh, let's read 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35. Then we'll skip around a bit. But someone will say... How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? That's right. And so let's skip down to 42. There's lots of great stuff in there. but So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. Oh, okay. So the way I read this is that the physical body is something that's subject to decay, corruption, disease, whatever. But it's raised in incorruption. It's raised a spiritual body which is not subject to disease and so on. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Could you make that a little clearer, please, Paul? There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Oh, thank you. Okay, so there's a natural body and there's a spiritual body and the spiritual body is incorruptible. So look over... If you can, without singing, dear reader, that, uh, let's pick up at verse 50. We might now, be forced to burst into song at this late hour of the Bible study. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now, wait a second. What do you say? Because I thought a lot of people have the idea that what's going to happen is Jesus is going to come back and all the dead will rise up out of their graves, which will be flesh and blood. And that'll be the kingdom of God. And yet here's Paul saying very clearly, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. 
It can't. They're two different things. Go on. Nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Yeah, the flesh doesn't, you know, you go from corruption to incorruption. You don't go the other way. And so what was Acts saying? Jesus is no more to return to corruption. He's not, com- he's not going to take on the flesh again. He's not going to be in physical flesh. It's very clear. No more to return to corruption, it says. Let's go on with the first Corinthians there so we can get to singing. Be- <laughs> Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. We shall be changed. <laughs> yes, go on. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet shall sound. <laughs> the dead shall be raised incorruptible. Can't hit that note. And we shall be changed. Yes. And why would that be, dear reader, in verse 53? For this corruptible must put on incorruption. You see? And this mortal must put on immortality. Mm. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, then this mortal, oh, sorry, and this mortal, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, interesting. So it's associating this with death, which is interesting. How it says, what do we Say back in verse 35, how are the dead raised up and with what body do they come? This is an answer to what happens to the dead when they're raised. That they, uh, so you, I mentioned that because that idea of corruption and incorruption, so, so that you understand what does it mean when it says Jesus is no more to return to corruption. He's not coming back. So why does it say he's coming back if he's not coming back? And let's look at some other passages. I found this fascinating today. I hadn't noticed this before. Let's go back to Matthew 16. First of the Gospels there. Yeah, 27 and 28. Very end of Matthew 16. Okay. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of His Father with His angels. With His angels. Now, it's interesting that a number of times when the second coming is described, He's got angels with Him. He comes in the glory of His Father with His angels. Sometimes we forget that part, but the angels are coming too. And And then He'll reward everyone for their faith. No. Oh. And then He will reward each according to His works. Oh, works. Oh. Darn it. Okay, go on. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Coming in His kingdom. Interesting phrase, isn't it? Coming in His kingdom. And yet we just read Paul say that uh, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So this is by definition a non-flesh non-blood kingdom that he's coming in and we read that he's you know he's no more to return to corruption so it's not going to be flesh it's not going to be blood he's coming with angels and he's coming in his kingdom and notice again what does it say does it say jesus it said the son of man and did it say he's going to do it or did it say we'll see him we see the son of man coming in his kingdom in his kingdom and surrounded by those angels. Interesting. Okay. Uh, Have a look at Luke. So turn to the right and go through Mark 
to Luke. Let's go to Luke 17. Sort of an obvious place to go. 20 and 21. Mm. Now, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. Okay, interesting question. <clears throat> When's the kingdom of God? So it's, doesn't it seem like when the Son of Man comes, his kingdom comes? He's coming in his kingdom. They're the same thing. So he's saying, when does the kingdom of God going to come? What did he say? He answered them and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. Wow. I thought he was telling everybody that they're going to see it and every eye shall see him, even those who pierce him. And yet here he's saying it's not observable. It's, it doesn't come with observation. Okay, go on. Nor will they say, see here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. It's within you. It's not flesh and blood. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The Lord's going to be coming, but it's not going to be a flesh and blood event. I mean, it seems pretty clear, doesn't it, from those passages? And yet there's tremendous confusion around this and thought, that, oh, no, there's going to be a rapture and there's going to be, you know, Jesus is going to come in the physical clouds and, and all that. Um, and yet there it says in what we just read, he's not going to return to corruption. It's not going to be observable, which means to me it's not going to be in the flesh. It's not going to be observable and it's not... Uh, going to be external. It's an inward thing. The kingdom of God is within you. So how is that? How do you see someone in the clouds that are not physical clouds uh, and you can't see it with your physical eyes? It's not observable. What is he talking about? All right. And uh, okay. I don't know. Let's try some other passages. Let's go back to the middle of your Bible, to the Psalms, and I want you to turn to the left and go back toward Genesis and go into Job chapter 7. This, again, is on the point of the, the common thought. I was just hearing from a friend today that this is not only a widespread thought in Christianity that people will be in the graves and then they'll rise up out of their graves and this is why graves are the way they are and they face the way they face a lot of you know a lot of attention has gone to this idea in fact part of the idea of the headstone my wife told me a while ago was to keep you under the ground until the right moment so you didn't come up early you know you know put the block of stone on there so they don't don't come up too early and um, so, but look at a passage like this, 7 verses 9 and 10. As the cloud disappears and vanishes away. Interesting that it would be likened to a cloud. Okay, the cloud. Okay, all right. So he who goes down to the grave does not come up. Yes, or in the old King James, shall come up no more. Huh. You go down to the grave, you're not going to come back. Seems kind of clear. Go on. He shall never return to his house, nor shall his place know him anymore. Yeah. Huh. Well, that, that doesn't sound like there's a physical resurrection there, does it? I mean, it sounds like you go down to the grave, you don't, you don't come back. Reminds me of another passage here. We don't, uh, won't go look at it right now, but David, when his little son passes away, he says, I will go to him. He will not return to me. 
uh, it, uh, we go this, we're here in corruption, then we go to incorruption. It, it doesn't go, you can't turn a pickle back into a cucumber. You know, it uh, doesn't go that way. Uh, it's, it's a one-way street. Uh, <laughs> so let's go back. Sorry if that made you hungry, dear reader. Um, so <laughs> we go back into the middle of your Bible. <laughs> let's go to the right. For Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and then we were just in Joel. Hosea, Joel, Amos. I want to go to Amos chapter 8. Uh, is that what I want? 8.14. I don't know. This is sort of subtle, but look at 8.14 right there. It's just been talking about the end of times, that the days are coming and so on. Uh, Those who swear... Oh, let's read verse 11. That's so good. Look at that. Wow. Behold, the days are coming, that one. Yes. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. It suddenly reminds me of Elijah out in the wilderness there. You're hungry and you're thirsty. But he says, this is not a hunger or thirst for bread or water. This is for hearing the words of the Lord. And the angel says, hey, come and eat. And he sees these things are right by his head. Okay, go on. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. In that day, the fair virgins and strong young men shall faint from thirst. Those who swear by the sin of Samaria, who say, As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. Never rise again. Fall, never rise again. It's not as clear as some of those other passages, but there's a number of places in Scripture that talks about this. That, hey, physical people are not going to be coming out of their graves. Uh, Swedenborg has an interesting, I know you're thinking, good friends, about what happened during the crucifixion when the graves were opened. But if you look at that passage carefully, it says the city. It doesn't say which city. It says the holy city or something. The, the graves were opened and were seen by many. Swedenborg says that was a city in the spiritual world, not the physical world. And that was about people rising up um, out of this place of the pit that's known as the grave. Uh, it wasn't about physical graves, but that give, gave people a lot, a lot of people the idea, oh, people can come out of graves. That can happen, you know. And that happened when Jesus came, and so it'll happen again when he comes again, that people will rise up out of their graves. Uh, let's go to John in the New Testament, chapter 14. Let's read those first three verses there, shall we? Mm. Yeah. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Yes. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. So Jesus is going there to prepare a place for us. Okay. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will come again. And receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Oh, I will come again. So wait a minute. So is that idea, so is the idea of the second coming that you get from that passage, is the idea of the second coming that wherever we are, the Lord will come and be? Did it say that? 
No, it said the opposite, didn't it? And it said, I will come again and receive you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. We're going to him. He, you know, he's coming to get us and take us to where he is. Okay? Uh, and isn't that interesting that he starts out that statement by saying, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also. You know, don't be, don't be bothered. You know, this is good news. Like, we're good. Don't, don't get, you know, don't fret about this. And, uh, okay. Okay, is it time, friends? Let's, let's do it. Let's go into the epistles. And about halfway through, you find the Hebrews. And if you turn left back toward the Old Testament from there, I want you to get to 1 Thessalonians. You go through 1 and 2 Timothy and get back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 because this is a really crucial passage a lot of people have leaned on about the second coming. Okay. Let's pick up at verse 13. Why don't we do that and read to the end of the chapter. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. And it's quite clear from the passage that asleep means people who have already died. Like partly the early church felt so much that Jesus was coming again any minute. He had said, this generation will not pass away, you know, and, until some see the Son of Man coming and so on, that they thought, oh, well, darn it, you know, because my friend died and he wasn't back yet, so I'm worried about that. What, did they miss it or something? Go on. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Yeah, those who, who are died and are in Jesus, they'll come too. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Oh, those who are asleep will go first. That's the implication, right? The coming of the Lord, those who are asleep, those who have died will come first. Okay, right? For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. Oh, there's that trumpet again. Don't sing. Okay, go on. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Oh, the dead. So when this trumpet, okay, so the dead will rise first. This is the kind of passage that made people think, oh yeah, sit up out of your grave. There you go. Go on. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. Oh, in the oh, we're going into we're going into the clouds. It's not the Lord coming in the clouds. We're going into the clouds. Okay. To meet the Lord in the air. Oh, so we'll meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Okay. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. And so um, this rather strange image that we'll be caught up into the clouds and we'll be in the air with the Lord. Maybe that's what he meant, that he's coming and he'll take us up into the air with him and we'll ever be with the Lord up there in the air and the dead will be there somehow. They got into the air too somehow and we'll all meet him in the air. Sounds kind of vaguely terrifying. It has caused people these images of people being sucked out of their boots and empty cars on the highway and so on when the rapture happens. This is the closest thing to the rapture that you get in Scripture. And look at verse 18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Yes, not comforting, terrifying. <laughs> the way people have read this, like, what do you mean comfort each other? And didn't Jesus just say when he's introducing that topic, he said, hey, don't let your heart be troubled. I got good news for you. I'm coming. 
I'm going to get you. And this is supposed to be comforting. Comfort one another with these words that we're going to shoot up into the air or something. You know, it's strange. Okay, now, okay, let me just give you a little new church reading on that, shall I? You see, here's the key to the thing. Uh, Maybe I'll put it on the board. Maybe I'll even write it on the board. Uh, Clouds and air equals scripture. Why on earth would I say a thing like that? What a ridiculous thing to say. The clouds are scripture? The air is scripture? What are you talking about? But think of the transfiguration. What happens? What are the main events there in the transfiguration when Jesus is transfigured on the top of the mountain? A cloud comes and covers them, and out of the cloud comes a voice. The voice of God comes out of a cloud, and who else does they happen to see up there? Oh, it's Moses and Elijah. Oh, the law and the prophets. Oh, it's scripture. The cloud is scripture. Right? And it said, we'll be caught up in the clouds in the air. Oh, and scripture. Now, the physical air doesn't sound like a nice place to always, always, always live in the clouds. I don't, I, don't, I think real estate's next to worthless up there. I don't know. But uh, I, it doesn't sound like a nice place to me. But if you think, but, and somehow we're meeting the dead up there. But think about scripture. If that cloud is scripture, then those who have died in the Lord are taken into that inner meaning of scripture first. And then we are caught up into the clouds and the air to be with the Lord and with all those people who have died. Scripture is something that can unite the two worlds. Comfort one another with these words. Your loved ones are in there. Get in the word. They're in there. That's the place where we can meet together. Uh, That's a new church reading of that, that passage. And Swedenborg is very, you might say, oh, well, doesn't Swedenborg say it doesn't have an inner meaning? No, he doesn't say that. He explains the inner meaning of things in the epistles a number of times. And he says that everything was written, that was written back then was written in correspondences. That's the way they wrote everything. And to me, it seems quite obvious that it's talking about uh, correspondences because it talks about the trumpet. Same thing that Paul was talking about, the trumpet, you know, which means divine truth. And so that's my reading of that. And that's how that's, that to me is a comforting reading. Being sucked into the air with dead people, it doesn't sound that great. But, um, but being drawn into the inner levels of scripture, the clouds of scripture and that air in there with the Lord and always being in the Lord in there, in the, in the inner levels of the word, that does sound nice. That sounds good. Um, uh, oh, okay, let's go to the right, and you go through Hebrews, which is pretty big, and come out the other side. You've got James real quick, and then First Peter. I want to go to Second Peter, Second Peter chapter 3. Another terrifying passage, absolutely frightening, about the second coming. Uh, where should we begin here? Um, oh, let's just start at... Second Peter chapter 3 at the beginning there. Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. Oh, one other thing I want to tell you. Just, uh, uh, sorry, but in 1 Thessalonians 4, I do want to point out, you don't have to go back there, good friends, you can just take my word for it, but in 1 Thessalonians 4, I don't know if you noticed this, 
But when he introduced this whole topic, Paul said, this we say to you by the word of the Lord. That's how he introduced it. This we say to you by the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord is something that has an inner meaning, you know. Uh, this we say to you by the word of the Lord. And sometimes Paul will say, I tell you a mystery. Isn't that what we had in that other 1 Corinthians 15 passage? I tell you a mystery. Like, hint, hint, inner meaning, you know. We're going into spiritual territory now. Okay, 2 Peter 3. Sorry for interrupting, good friends. <clears throat> Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets. Oh, same place Swedenborg wants us to go for information about the second coming. Interesting, okay. And of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Good. Knowing this first that scoffers will come in the last days, okay. walking according to their own lusts, okay. and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Huh, funny that, isn't that great? <laughs> he said, Peter said, this is, a, this is the apostle Peter, who was alive at the time of Christ, and he's writing shortly thereafter, that someday you're going to get scoffers and lustful people coming along and saying, where's the promise of his coming? Never seems to happen. Well, you know, people could justifiably say that now, like, hey, where's the promise of his coming? He never, since, since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were. It's just, it keeps not happening. No matter how many billboards you put on I-95 about May 21st, it doesn't happen. Go on. For this they willfully forget that by the word of God, there it is again, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water. Oh, it seems like an allusion to Genesis, doesn't it? By the word of God, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. Right. By which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. Oh, I remember that. Wasn't that that flood story in Genesis? Right. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word. Oh, by the same word. Are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. That sounds bad. The heavens and the earth are going to burn. Is that what you're saying, Peter? Go on. But beloved, do not forget this one thing. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Okay, so watch your time scale, you know, uh, go on. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Weird thing to say if you're talking about the physical destruction of the heavens and the earth. I'm talking about the physical destruction by fire of the heavens and the earth, and I want you to know the Lord doesn't want anyone to perish. Weird. Well, then don't do the fire. Don't burn the whole heavens and the earth. Why would you do that? Why is it talking about that he doesn't want anyone to perish, but that all should come to repentance? And another thing is like, hey, if the heavens are on fire and the earth is on fire, what does it say on the thing by the hotel door? Does it say, make sure your repentance is in order before you check whether the door is hot? No, you got to get out. You don't have time to repent. It's over. 
Right? Why is it talking about repentance? Go on. Tell me more about that. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. That sounds bad. And the elements will melt with fervent heat. Sounds worse. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Okay, that sounds horrifying. I just have to say, so the heavens will pass away with a great pop. There goes the sky. Bang. All the heavens, everything gone. And the elements don't like that idea. They'll melt with fervent heat. Yikes. Like what? <laughs> Calcium, phosphorus, all that. Just whoa. Fervent heat. Sounds like absolute destruction. The earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. And so the next question is what? Verse 11. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Hey, I tell you what. If the sky is burning and the earth is melting, it does not matter what kind of person I am. What do you mean, what does it matter? So here's the important thing. What kind of person are you? The, the, the earth is on fire and melting. You know? Hope you treat other people nicely when your legs are burning off or something. You know, what is it talking about? Why would that be an issue? And then look at verse 12. It's bizarre. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. No, don't hasten it. Don't look for it. It's going to be horrible. Why would you look for and hasten the coming of the day of God? Everything's going to burn. So be a good person. <laughs> and look for and hasten that day when everything's going to go down in flames. What's it talking about? Go on. Hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. In case you'd forgotten that little detail from two <laughs> verses before, we have a nice pleasant reminder. Okay. Nevertheless. Hastening. Okay. Oh, sorry. Yep. We, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. New heavens and a new earth in which righteousness... Wait a minute. Is this whole thing about righteousness? Is that why you're telling me to repent? Is that why you're saying, oh, it matters what kind of person you are? Because we're actually talking about whether there's righteousness in the world or not. And maybe this fire is non-physical or something. Because... If it's physically on fire, I don't get why it matters what kind of person I am. Go on. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things... Be what, what are you... Are you nuts? What are you talking about? I'm not looking forward to having the elements melt with fervent heat. I'm not hastening that day. I'm not interested in that day. What are you talking about? Looking forward to these things. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah, go on. <laughs> Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace. Yeah, without... no peace here. I'm not feeling the peace, are you? Go on. To be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. Yeah, it's just hard to imagine how that matters at a time like that. And here's a very interesting little passage. Let's keep going. It's just fun. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. Okay, so we're talking about salvation somehow. This long-suffering, repentance, salvation. Okay, go on. As also our beloved brother Paul. I remember Paul. According to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. Oh, Paul was writing about the same thing to us? He was? Okay, go on. 
as also in all his epistles. Oh, he wrote about this in all his epistles? Oh, okay. Speaking in them of these things. Oh, he did? Okay. In, in which are some things hard to understand. I thought they were all literally easily understood. What do you mean, Peter, that Paul says things that are hard to understand? Like being caught up in the air, would that be an example of something hard to understand? Okay, go on. Which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. You mean that Paul is twistable? You mean that Paul expresses himself in difficult ways sometimes and you can misinterpret him and think he's talking about faith alone or something? Amazing. You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, oh. being led away with the error of the wicked. But instead you should do what? But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Okay. <clears throat> so that's comforting. Uh, so <laughs> what a passage. It's talking about the elements melting with fervent heat. The sky is on fire. The earth is on fire. And it really matters whether you're a good person or not. Um, what is it talking But we're looking for a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. Well, if this is talking about physical fire, it's a crazy piece of writing. But if this is a spiritual fire, it starts to make sense. In fact, I think the passage is talking about two different kinds of fire. And I don't know if I can make my point here. I barely understand it myself. <laughs> but, uh, okay. What if, you remember how, remember John the Baptist People came down and he said, oh, vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And he said, hey, do, you know, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And if you don't, your tree will be cut down and thrown into fire, he said, right? Well, that, doesn't that mean some sort of hell fire or something? What if this fire is the fire of loving ourselves more than God, that just boundless egotism. And what if this love is the love of world more than the love of the neighbor, where you do anything for money and trample people, whatever. Uh, what if that is the fire that it's talking about? And what if things are going to happen at some point where we're getting overwhelmed by the, that fire? Because didn't it say in verse 7 that this is fire that causes the perdition of ungodly people. This is the fire that burns the ungodly. Oh, if that's the fire you're talking about, yeah, that fire is very much affected by how you live your life. If you mistreat people, that fire gets worse until your inner self, oh, let's just call it your heavens, and your outer self, I don't know, why don't we just call it your earth, are on fire, like you're on fire inwardly, you're on fire ex you know, externally, and uh, everything in you that's worthwhile uh, and God-fearing is burning up because you're so full of that lust and uh, rage and violence and so on. That's the way that that would be destroyed. And so that would explain why the Lord is not, you know, he, he's patient about his promise and he doesn't want anyone to perish. If it's talking about a physical fire, it doesn't make sense. 
But if it's talking about a spiritual fire, it makes sense. And he wants all to come to repentance. But, my friends, I think the next fire that it mentions is different. What does it say? The heavens, in verse 10, will pass away with a great noise. What if that great noise is the sound of divine truth? Bang! You know, like this announcement of truth that goes out. That noise in the heavens. The heavens, those old rotten heavens, both on a grand scale with whole religious movements, but also in us as individuals, that heaven, it's good news. Comfort one another with these words. That heaven will pass away with a great noise. And it's interesting that it says the word melt. We didn't hear melt before, but it says the elements will melt with fervent heat. What if that's a good kind of heat? What if that is the love of God and the love of the neighbor that's burning your old self? Doesn't it say in Malachi or somewhere, where is it? Malachi or something. Doesn't he say something about, if I can't find it, I'll give up very quickly. Just pops to mind all of a sudden. Uh, doesn't it say something about a refiner's fire? Malachi 3, verse 2, Who may abide the day of his coming? Who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. The Lord's coming is said to be like a fire that's going to refine. It's a good. So it melts something. That's good. It's not bad. It melt, melt the elements with fervent heat. That's what we want to have happen. When you want to be a better person, you want the Lord to come and melt those old elements, that old earth, and the works that are in, therein, all your bad behaviors. Yeah, melt that, you know, melt that with love of God, with love of the neighbor. So there's two fires in there, I think. And the stuff is going to be burned up. And so it says, seeing that all these things will be dissolved, what manner of person are you? What's your behavior like? If it's physical fire, it makes no sense to me. If it's spiritual, it's got everything to do with it. How are you going to respond to that fire? If you're the kind of person who's willing to be refined, it'll be a good day for you. And that's why you would look for and hasten that day of the coming of God. Because like, man, that's what I prayed for. Get rid of this old junk, lay that evil aside. Makes no sense as a physical promise, but as a spiritual promise, it makes a lot of sense uh, that we're looking for that day when the heavens are transformed by that love and when the earth is melted with that fervent heat of the Lord in there. And that we, according to his promise, look for new heavens. That's what we're working for, regeneration, rebirth. New heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. This is how you purge a refiner's fire. This is how you purge away the wickedness. This is something that he wants to do the whole world. It's something that he wants to do with each of us as individuals. And so the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. This is a passage about salvation, not a passage about eventual destruction of the physical planet. As destruction of the planet, the passage makes no sense. But you put on your correspondence helmet, oh, all of a sudden the blue turns a little green and the red turns a little different color, and you can see, oh, wait, that's beautiful. There's something beautiful in there. That's amazing. Hard to see under other circumstances. Uh, whoa, let's do one more, shall we, friends? In the book of Acts, which is right after John there, uh, Acts chapter 1. This is one of the very few that actually says that Jesus himself is going to come instead of saying the Son of Man and instead of saying the seeing him, that he'll just come. So uh, Jesus has been speaking to people. This is after the resurrection. He gives them instructions. And then verses 9 to 11, what do we have there? 
Now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, these were disciples who were watching, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Oh, he went up into a cloud, did he? Okay. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. Two things I want to say. This reminds me of Matthew 24, 30 that we just read where it says he's coming in the clouds of heaven. It didn't say the clouds of the sky. It said the clouds of heaven, right? You'll see the sign of the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven, not the physical earth. He's no more to return to corruption. This is going to be a spiritual event. And look at them. They're looking steadfastly, not toward the sky, but toward heaven as he went up. And then these two people stand by them in white apparel. Generally, when people appear beside you, like, let's say, a cake and a jar of water, unexpectedly, in the middle of the desert, uh, and they're wearing white, they're probably angels, right? They're probably non-physical beings. They're human beings who passed on in the other world. They're angels who suddenly appear as they're looking up toward heaven, watching Jesus disappear into a cloud, and these angels say what? Who also said, <clears throat> Man of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Oh, he's going to come back the same way he went up. Well, if you think of that as a physical thing, that he shot up into the physical clouds and then two somehow physical angels in physical white clothes appeared beside you and said this, then you think he's going to physically come back in the physical clouds, even though later on in the same book it says he's no more to return to corruption. But if you understand that when you see angels, friends, your eyes, your spiritual eyes are opened, you're seeing in the spiritual world. It looks just like this world, but you're seeing in the spiritual world. They are looking in the spiritual world. They see Jesus ascend into the clouds of heaven, which means it's scripture. And there are two angels there that say he's going to come back the same way he came. When you understand the whole context is heaven, he's going to come down from heaven the same way he went up, and it's going to involve these clouds of scripture. Wow, okay. Shall I tie this all together in three minutes. That'd be good. Uh, don't know if I can do that, feeling some anxiety right now. Um, okay. Uh, the clouds of Scripture are the clouds that are referred to. They're not physical clouds. As physical clouds, the thing doesn't work. There's never clouds all over the whole earth. And uh, it's not just... He, uh, there's, there's one more scripture I needed to read. Where is that? Uh, Hebrews 13.8. Sorry about this. Let's go into the middle of this. It's just an important point. Uh, sorry, back into Hebrews 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Okay. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not changing. So somehow, whatever this seeing him come in the clouds of heaven, and he's coming back, and we'll see him in the clouds, but he's not going to return to the flesh. It's not going to be a physical kingdom. It's not going to be observable from the point of view of the flesh. And Jesus is not going to change at all in the course of doing it. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So he's not going to change. So how does that work? And he's no more to return to corruption. Well, I think how it works is that it's much more about our seeing. It's about our seeing. 
at one moment, Elijah doesn't see anything. There's nothing to eat. There's nothing to drink. The question is, is there a cake? Is there a jar of water by his head? I don't know. But the angel says, arise and eat. And he looks around and, oh, practically knocked it over right there beside himself. There's food and drink right beside him. It's a question of seeing. That's why it emphasized we will see him coming in the clouds of heaven. Is he already in the clouds of heaven? Well, we just read that they saw him go. He's in the clouds. Yes, he's in the it's, it's, He's not changing. He's not moving. He's not going from A to B. What's happening is that we are understanding Scripture in a different way. When we come to understand the Scriptures in a different way and we start to see, it's so interesting that when you're in that carnal, materialistic kind of mindset, you honestly think the worst thing that could ever happen would be the physical elements burning with fervent heat. It would be the destruction of the planet. By the way, if Scripture means that the planet's going to be destroyed, which is the way that some people read Scripture, why does it say in that day one will be taken and the other will be left? Left where? One will be taken, the other left? Left where? I thought everything was destroyed. How could 50% of them still be somewhere if it's all, you know, doesn't make sense. So a lot of these things don't make sense until you look at them through a spiritual lens. And I'm so grateful to Swedenborg for for supplying one that we can kind of peek through and try to see these things. So if it's a matter of seeing, the sun that's darkened, the moon and the stars have to do with the love of God grows dark. The moon of faith grows dark. The stars, which are any knowledge of spiritual things, come crashing down into an earthly state. All that knowledge used to be spiritual. It was up there somewhere. It's all come crashing down to earth. Physical stars can't come down to physical earth. Spiritual stars, knowledge, can totally come down to an earthly place. They can do that, and they can do that repeatedly. <laughs> they do it in Scripture, repeated. They do it before the Lord's first coming. They do it again before His second coming. Uh, they do that repeatedly, that that spiritual knowledge can be brought down into, a, in, into an earthly state. Then all the tribes of the earth shall wail. They'll see the sign of the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. And you, you see the Son of Man. The Son of Man means the Lord as the Word. Swedenborg talks about this a lot, has a whole chapter on it in his little pamphlet called The Lord. And I recommend that to your attention. Um, that the Son of Man, he has all kinds of passages that show that it means the Lord in his role as the Word. John 1.14 says that Jesus was the Word made flesh. And so that's the Son of Man. And He's going to come back as the Word. The Lord in the Word is going to come back. The clouds are when we don't understand Scripture. Hello, ever been there? Those are the clouds. And then the clarity is when the voice comes out of the clouds, right? Uh, the clarity is when you're in the air. We're either in the clouds or we're in the air. And we're there with people who've passed on. This is a vision of what's going to happen eventually where the heavens and the earth are reunited through Scripture, through our more heavenly understanding of Scripture. We're able to be with those who have passed on, those who sleep in Jesus, those who've passed on before us, and we'll ever be with the Lord up there. And it's a question of our vision, our understanding. Arise and eat. Elijah looks around. Oh, it's right there beside me. The Lord is already the Word. He became the Word when He was here in the world. He's not moving. He's not changing. 
And the kingdom of God is not going to come with a physical observation, because you won't see it with your physical eyes. It's the eyes of your mind when you read the word. It, he is not coming back to corruption. He's not reassuming physical flesh and going back and starting over as a cucumber again or something. He's, he's not doing that. Uh, it's, it's not going to involve that return to the flesh. Uh, his kingdom is not of this world. It, it, so it's not going to come with observation. Uh, how this is going to work is that we're going to start understanding something even more powerful than seeing. Think about it. Much more powerful. It would be powerful, I admit, to see Jesus in the physical clouds. That would be powerful. But how much more powerful to see the divine love and wisdom in the pages of Scripture. Everybody has access to that all the time. You don't have to, whoops, I blinked and I missed it. You know, whoops, I died and I missed it. You know, no, that's coming to everyone. Every eye, that means every understanding, every mind shall see him. Even those who pierced him, even those who got it wrong are going are gonna to see this like, whoa, oh, it's true. The Lord's love and wisdom are in this book. Um, anything else I need to say about that? So it's just like finding a, a jar, like a cake and a jar of water right by your head. The Lord is already in position. He got into, into, into position thousands of years ago. He's in place. The thing is, we're going to see him coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And so, in closing, uh, good friends, uh, I urge you every week to keep on repenting. I do hope that you do that, good friends. And I'm going to keep working on that myself. But I also would really like to urge you, if you feel so inclined, to read these scriptures, read the New Testament, read the Gospels, read the epistles, and do what Swedenborg said. Hey, look, and even in the Old Testament prophets, look in the prophets, look and see what's about the second coming. There's really, I'd have to say of the five topics, in a way, this is the one the closest to my heart, and it's the most important. Yes, salvation is vitally important. Yes, understanding the word, getting the Trinity right, first coming, all that is vitally important. But here we are, friends. This is it. And it's up to the people who are alive. It's not about the Lord changing. He's not going to change. We need to change. We need to come into a better understanding and see the Lord. I tell you this by the word of the Lord, says Paul. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We need to understand that mystery. We need to come into that vision of, of the spiritual meaning of Scripture. Then we can be caught up in the air. It's not going to be some silly rapture left behind thing or something. Uh, this is going to be a very powerful event uh, and a very sweeping event, transformative to the cultures of the world, much more powerful than seeing one person. Like if one person was in the clouds, is everybody going to see him on the other side of the earth where it's dark? And he's, how does it work? Is he, ever, is he huge and he's everywhere at once like a big spaceship or something? doesn't work. But everybody can see him in the pages of the Word. Those are clouds that everybody can see him in. And at that last trumpet, when we reach that last moment of our lives in this world, we shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye. That's our last trumpet. And we'll go from that world of corruption to the world of incorruption, never to return again. And to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's our own, ultimately, our own second coming. The Lord comes to us in this world 
but then we meet him at the time of our death. Those are linked in an interesting way. And um, so it actually is good news. It is comforting if you read it spiritually. Read it physically, terrifying. Spiritually, comforting. Thank you, good friends. Let's close with a prayer. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you are the one God of heaven and earth. You are the Word made flesh. We pray for your coming, Lord. When you say in the book of Revelation, let those who thirst say, come. We are to repeat this call to say, Lord, please come into this world. You are badly needed down here. Please come into our understanding of your Word. You are badly needed in our lives as individuals. You are badly needed in our world as a whole. We invite you, Lord, and we hope that our eyes, too, can see you coming in those pages of Scripture, those clouds of Scripture, and that we can be caught up in the air with the angels, with you, to always be with you in the Word. Our Father, who art in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so upon the earth. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let's keep on repenting, friends. Maybe he's right by our heads. <laughs>